Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to factoryofthefuture.org, where manufacturers, makers, and students master current best practices and discover what's in the factory of the future. And now to our host, Mitch Kennedy. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. Right now, we're offering free membership. Go to factoryofthefuture.org forward slash participate. We're also looking for manufacturing writers, photos, and videos. And please contact us if you would like sustainability consulting services. President North America. President. That's a group, yeah. Wow. Congratulations. There you go. Change. That's why I'm so busy these days. Right. <laughs> Well, now I feel guilty for taking up your time. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to another episode of FactoryTheFuture.org's podcast. I'm host Mitch Kennedy, co-founder of FactoryTheFuture.org, and with me in the studio today is Clive Cunliffe, president of North America Pietro Rosa Group. Welcome to the studio, Clive. Hi, Mitch. Nice to see you again. Clive, one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast and this particular series of podcasts is to interview people who are, uh, quote, in manufacturing. And if you say that to most people, they'll say, oh, he must sit at a machine turning metal. What we want to show is that, no, there are so many different kinds of jobs in manufacturing that you can be in manufacturing and never even touch a machine. So could you talk to our listeners about your origin story, how you got to where you are? Okay, sure. Well, you're right, Mitch. Manufacturing isn't all about making something. It's about the methodology that you actually get to produce a product. And um, I consider myself to be one of the lucky, if you want to call it that, or fortunate people that have had a wealth of background experience that has led me to get the position that I've got today. I tend to think that you can't be too myopic about the job that you're looking for for the future. I certainly never have been. I've never really known what I wanted to do, and I probably still don't know what I really want to do, ultimately. But I think you have to search your inner soul and decide what's good for you. If you take that to the highest level, it's are you a person that's creative? For me, that is a key. I like creating things. It doesn't matter whether it's creating things with my hands, whether it's creating things from a business perspective, or whether it's creating things for the betterment of the outside world. That's the sort of thing that turns me on. But I didn't really know that until much later in life. When I left school, I started uh, with Rolls-Royce. They sponsored me to become uh, an engineer, qualified engineer, which I am. And I worked in the design department, oddly enough, for compressor airfoils. And that was fine. I was one of those people who actually liked going to work every day. And it was odd because most of the people hated going to work. That's right. <laughs> and I really found the actually being there an inspiration for me. So much so that uh, throughout virtually all of my career, I've been invited to do jobs rather than actually apply for them. That became a little bit of a snowball effect because when you become fairly good at something, companies go through changes in what they're trying to achieve and they realize that there are flat spots in organizations. So in certain functions within organizations, they realize they need to employ some talent that knows something 
about the manufacturing of product. When I left the engineering group within Rolls-Royce, I went in to run the test sites for defence engines. And that was very interesting. It was very sort of, you know, manly, noisy, <laughs> smelly, all that kind of stuff. And it was really, really enjoyable to do. But it was actually completely different from sitting in my day at a drawing board, mm-hmm. drawing things and doing calculations. And then from there, I moved into logistics and inventory control. Mm. Logistics, actually, is one of the fundamental roles within any manufacturing cycle. And it's the way that you get product literally from out of the ground to something that's finished to go into an end user's end, uh, end user's anything. It doesn't matter what it is. You can have a logistics uh, activity for Baking, you could have a logistics uh, activity for manufacturing, you could have a logistics activity for building a house. So it's how you manage all the products and materials that go into producing something. Now that might sound quite easy if you're baking a cake. I'm sure if you do bake cakes, you realise that it's not because the mixture's got to be right, the quantities have got to be right, the temperatures have got to be right. right. All that could fall into the boundaries of logistics. So in our case, which would be a a manufacturing supply chain, it would be how we get the product in terms of raw material supply into a company that's going to make it. They then might want to machine it. It's then going to come out of there in what quantity, in what time frame, on what vehicle, air freighted, train freighted, freighted by road, how is it going to get from A to B? And then there's the internal factory logistics of how it's going to be assembled, not how it's going to be assembled, but when it's going to be assembled, where it's going to be assembled, how it's going to be picked up, and where is its end destination going to. Hmm. And throughout the life cycle of the manufacturing of a product, that changes. It doesn't change on a daily basis, but because products change in terms of material types, specifications, complexity, or simplicity, those logistics fundamentals are constantly a moving feast. So it takes a lot of management skill to well manage a logistics activity. And then the logistics activity, of course, scarfs into a number of other key functions. So it keys into engineering when a product's going to be designed. It keys into manufacturing when machine tools are going to be ready to operate and commissioned. Tooling, when the tooling is going to be there. You name it, it touches every facet of the manufacturing cycle. So logistics is something that, it actually sounds quite a boring thing, but it's not. It, it, can, it can keep you awake a lot of nights, logistics. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. I like that phrase. So you did that for a while yeah, with Rolls-Royce. Uh, is headquartered in England? Headquartered in, um, in, in Derby, in England. From there, I then moved on to uh, Joint Ventures, which was great. A number of countries that... Uh, we're all pretty successful, actually. So that could have gave me a, a very much a sort of global feel. And travel is something I enjoy. I enjoy dealing with different cultures. And I think when it comes to trying to put together a business proposition that's partnering with somebody, there has to be a win for both parties. And normally one side's got a stronger argument for needing the other. And it's a rare occasion that you find a, a joint venture party where it actually works well for both people. Um, so there's an awful lot of work that goes into trying to 
understand what the key requirements are for both stakeholders and then put in a deal together that can then give the market something that it needs. And I found that probably one of the most interesting times in my life, actually, simply because different cultures, different people travel, putting deals together, and it, it, it drew on all my previous experiences. Then I did a lot of supply chain work. So supply chain sort of scarfed together a lot of those key elements so that was uh, for supply selection, supply chain design, actually. And supply chain design has gone through quite a metamorphosis in the last 20 years. And that metamorphosis has been 20 to 30 years ago, there was much less of an emphasis on cost. Mm-hmm. It was about getting product that was well-designed, well-crafted, very reliable into the marketplace. And people were less conscious about things like SFC, which is fuel consumption, they were less conscious about the price of the thing because they needed these things to fly or power power generation stations or ships. But now, and for the last many years, cost is king. Mm. I wouldn't say it's king alongside quality. Quality is always the optimal right. thing in anything in life. And then probably second to that is cost. The world's gone through huge changes in terms of looking at supply chain design. And the, the geopolitics of the world are something that have changed a lot. People at one point some years ago were running to China. Then they were running away from China. At some point they'll be running back to China. And I think it depends on which manufacturing environment you're in. If you're in something that you'd classify as a super complex manufacturing environment, which would be gas turbines, then you have to be obviously very selective about the supplier that you go for. They've got to meet all the key criteria and more and meet a lot of things like quality, cost, delivery and have all the certifications that are needed before they can even be considered. If you're making garden furniture, it's really different. You can get them made somewhere in a, you know, in in a basic sand foundry and it's fine. And it's, and cost is absolutely king. But even that mindset's changing a little bit now, I think. So there's, there's huge think tanks that are going on about mindsets, sorry, not mindsets, about supply chains of the future. Because supply chains of the past, I think, go through a radical cycle probably about every 30 years. And we're now, I think, in pretty much a, a, a big change in terms of the way we think about supply chains for the future. Now you're at a very large uh, Italian Multinational, right? Well, medium size. Medium size, okay. Yeah. yeah. Pietro Rosa. Yeah. And what is it that you're doing for them? Okay, so um, I now work for a company called uh, Pietro Rosa. And Pietro Rosa Group is uh, a company that's got facilities in the US and in Italy. I've been working for Pietro Rosa 10 years now, actually. And uh, Pietro Rosa is an interesting company. It's a, it's a family-owned company. It's been in existence now 132 years, which wow. is quite significant. Any company that survives, oddly enough, it's older than, it's probably, it, it's older than GE, it's older than Pratt & Whitney, and it's older than Rolls-Royce, who are three of our major customers. Wow. Any company that survives that long has to have a certain DNA, and I think that DNA is as prevalent today as it must have been when it was first founded. That DNA is the ability to accept change. Ah. And I think companies that die in the marketplace, you get a startup company that does great, 
The enthusiasm goes, or the marketplace shifts, and the company can't move uh-huh. into the right space. Or it can't move fast enough, or there's not the enthusiasm to move fast enough. Well, this company, and I'm sure like many others that are, you know, long-lived companies, have got that ability. And I'm glad to say that Pietro Rose has got that ability in abundance. Our tagline is passion for innovation. Actually, that is really contained within the DNA of the entire group. And when I say innovation, it's innovation in terms of where we want to be in the marketplace. It's where we want to be in terms of what we manufacture and how we manufacture it. And for us, that's a key differentiator in the order winning process. And this company has gone through big changes probably about every 30 or so years in terms of what it makes and how it makes it. But it's always been based on one key fundamental thing, which is the company's excellence. And the excellence is in forging. Hmm. So the foundations of the company are a forging company in a a place called Maniago, Italy. And we now do finish machining and certain finishing. So we provide engine-ready products, and that's called vertical integration. Ah. So it's from forging to machining to finishing to an engine-ready product. And not everybody can do that because a lot of the time forging is done as an entity in its own right, Right. machining is done as an entity in its own right, and then it it gets finished and then sent off. So we can supply the whole package. And uh, for us, that's been extremely valuable. We decided to venture into the US just four years ago now. The reason being the aerospace and defence business in North America is so buoyant. It's going to be buoyant for a very long time. Right. And we decided to buy New England Air Force products. Its foundations are a very old company. It was founded by uh, George Einstein. He was Albert Einstein's nephew. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right here in Connecticut. Absolutely. And they, they were, they were, although they were, they, they, they were good friends as well as related. And they used to play the violin together, apparently. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you know, it's quite a privilege to have such a, such a brand name that sits behind the, uh, behind the company. What we've actually done in, in, a, in a very small way, not for any financial gain, but we've leveraged on George Einstein's name as being the founder of the company. And that was back in 1945 when it was called something different. And then in 1955, it was called New England Aircraft Products. And then it changed to airfoil products. We found that the employee engagement has been key for us. They, they, we want them to feel part of a family-owned company. We want them to feel enthusiastic about what they do. We want people to run to work like I used to, and still do, to be honest with you, but I'm more fly to work these days. <laughs> so we, we introduced a thing called the, the George Einstein Award for somebody that demonstrates all our key principles of the year. Then we have a vote at Christmas. Awesome. And they get a you know yeah. a small gift yeah. and a privileged car parking spot and the name on a plaque in the lobby. Brilliant. And we found that to be very, very good mm. for employee recognition. And that's the kind of thing that we like to do do more of. We're also finding that the cross fertilization of skills between Italy and the US has been extremely good for us. It's been good for Italy and it's been good for uh, our North American plant here. Largely because the, the machining techniques are slightly different. Uh, New England Air Force products has always been geared towards high volume manufacture, oh. whereas Italy has been more 
biased in the past towards land-based gas turbine manufacture, which is a lower volume. Oh, okay. So now we're actually moving more into higher volume in both parts of the world. This cross-fertilisation of manufacturing skills is working very well. Mm. We also grow a lot, I think, with the associations we have. We're very uh, affiliated with a number of key universities, affiliated with key business areas, things like uh, the Aerospace Industries Association, uh, the ACM. We found that those have been the catalysts for us to get the right connectivity that we need. That, that was a great piece. I like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I didn't give anything this way, but it's, you know, it's just... No, 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 no. Yeah. No, it's yeah. perfect. So, Clive, can I ask you to talk a little bit about technology on the shop floor, where things stand now, where you see it going for, for your company? Well... Sort of just going back a tiny bit to um, what I was saying about companies having to reinvent themselves. One of the things that we have to do, again, like almost every other company, you have to make sure that you're not backing a dinosaur. And that can be so easily done with technology. Because technology is moving so fast today, it's very difficult to know where to place your money. You can place your bets everywhere and end up with no money left, and one of them will win and will be fine. <laughs> or you can be, take a much more cautious approach and decide what you think the market needs now and what it's going to need in 5, 10, and 20 years' time. And those markets can be very different, certainly in terms of manufacturing. So there's a coin of phrase that I quite like, that I've used for lots of years, and that's really a thing that I call Vision 5, Vision 10, Vision 20. I know a lot of big companies use that term, but I think it really works well. Because Vision 5, for me, is the near-term horizon in terms of both manufacturing and in terms of what the requirements will be in the marketplace. So you can kind of reach out and touch that and see it and feel it and spend money carefully and well and get a return on it. Make sure you're, you're yeah. only looking five years out. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's Vision 10. Lots of things can happen in 10 years. Yeah. Lots of things can happen in five. But in 10 years, it's much more speculative. You have to start thinking about new technologies that are going to be deployed and used well. Additive manufacturing, everybody talks about. It's right. clearly something that's going to be with us in a big way in the future. We've looked at additive manufacturing, as is about everybody on the planet, whether it be from additive manufacturing for plastic toys or <laughs> additive manufacturing for gas turbine parts. And the reality is it's still in its relative infancy, yeah. and it's a high-risk place to put lots of money. Hmm. I think it is a good place to put money, but how much, really don't know. But it is going to be a game-changer in manufacturing. And there's a, a ratio that, that aircraft or aerospace companies use, and it's called a buy-to-fly ratio. And the buy-to-fly ratio is the amount of metal that you put into creating a part. Oh. So you buy a big lump of metal, right. you machine the hell out of it, yep. and you end up with something that's, you know, a hundredth the time, the size that it started <laughs> off at. And you've put a lot of it in the in the scrap metal or swarf bin ready for recycling. Yeah, you'd be lucky if you get 10 cents on the dollar. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the thing called a buy-to-fly ratio. So for lots of years now, there's been a measurement within aerospace companies that what's our buy-to-fly ratio? How much metal have we bought to end up to make this product? Mm. Now, additive manufacturing is, of course, the perfect antidote to a bad buy-to-fly ratio, right. which is why it's become so prevalent in the marketplace. But the key characteristic about additive manufacturing is 
what's going to happen to the grain flow because we forge product we get an inbuilt grain flow which gives it a more residual stronger material talk a little bit about grain flow for a second because that's right it's a concept not everybody's heard and okay and and i think in the context of 3d printing or additive that's that's where where you're going Yeah. yeah okay so in very simplistic terms when you extrude a billet or you create a billet of material so when you when you when you look at a piece of steel, it's in a section. It's either a rectangular section, more often a round section, and that starts off life as a thing called an ingot, which is where it's been smelted, it's turned into steel, it's then been stretched and banged and formed, and it just becomes a big ingot. And then that then gets turned into a billet. And a billet is the piece of material that you would buy, and the grain flow within that billet is linear. So if you took, it's just like a tree. Okay. If you were to cut a section through it and do a microsection, you'd see a, basically an end grain. An end grain. It, because it's just one linear grain flow. When a product gets forged, then because of the action of the hammer or the press, what it's doing, because you're deforming that metal, you're actually creating that grain flow to move up and down along with the shape of the material. Wow. So that increases its strength. If you were to cast product, you would you would melt the material, yep. put it into some form of vessel, and then if it's a sand casting, get rid of the sand and crack it open. Then it's got really no grain form. It's hmm. just pieces of metal that have all been fused together in, okay. the, in the process of cooling down. As long as history has been making metal, forged material is the strongest material. Huh. Um, there are much more exotic things now in the marketplace, of course, but the fundamental rules still apply. So when you're creating metal from the ground up, as it were, with, with powder metrology, which is really what, what's happening when it comes to uh, additive manufacturing, there isn't really a grain. You're actually hmm. almost doing a casting method in reverse, if huh. you like. There's lots of things, lots of processes that have got to be applied if it's going to be a structural part to make it as strong as you need it to be. And in many, 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 many cases, that can't be done huh. at this stage in huh. that kind of process. That's fascinating. So that's, yeah. that's really where differentiation lies in terms of how we, uh, how we create materials. I had always wondered, since it's been years now, at least five, maybe ten years, that you hear about 3D printing and additive manufacturing. Yeah. And... I go into a lot of factories. I just don't see the machines there, you know? yeah. and that is yeah. why. I mean, that, that's a that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for yeah. <laughs> spending the time to really dive on that because that's uh, I don't think many people know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 fairly basic stuff. If you've been in in this industry for a long time, it's kind of it's foundational, I guess, mm-hmm. to the way products made. So I was talking about Vision Five, Vision Ten, Vision Twenty. How far out are you going to go into right. the? manufacturing space or the technology space for way we need how we're going to make product in the future the same thing actually applies when it comes to the marketplace of the future because it's no good investing in the most fantastic sexiest technology of the day if there's no need for it 10 or 20 years down the line having said that if it's a computer there'll be no need for it a year down the line. <laughs> so depends on the on the market space that you're in Gas turbines are, are here and now and have been with us for a very long time since the you know since the 1930s basically. They've evolved, they've changed, but they're still basically a gas turbine with its 
mechanisms that work about the same way with far more exotic materials, far more uh, efficient, far more powerful, far more of everything. But the world's changing. And now we see uh, electric-powered aircraft. Where's that going to take the gas turbine market? You know, we saw a massive collapse in the power gen market for gas turbines. Will that recover? Probably not anywhere near where it used to be. And part of the reason that the power gen market will not be where it used to be is the world's become, although it's using more energy, it's become more energy efficient. So is it using more energy? Not really. It's actually doing more with the energy that it produces. That has worked against the gas turbine, turbine industry in one way. When it comes to the aerospace market, I'm sure there's a big place for gas turbines for many, many, many years to come. But there's also going to be a place for electrically powered aircraft. Right. And that's happening now. You can see it. Yeah. We're at the Paris Air Show and electric propulsion systems were there in everything you see. You know, right. And you can see them in drones that are working very efficiently. Mm-hmm. They're going to be probably in air transportation that's going to be very efficient. They're going to be in the new airship type space that's going to be coming. Right, which sounds like we've gone back a hundred years. The big, but yeah. big blimps. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. All, all those yeah. things are changing the face of what we need for technology for tomorrow. We, as a company that pride ourselves in being proactive about what we're going to be doing in the future, in 10, 20 years, we're looking at all those different places now where we need to be, where we need to invest. Hmm. What kind of business do we want to be in 20 years' time? Because it's almost certain that we won't be exactly the same as we are now. Right, right. And I think that's 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 the way the world's leading us. You know, that was great. I love that. He <laughs> shrugged, shrugged your shoulders, but <laughs> it, it shows it shows forward thinking and planning and deliberate embrace of change. You have to, and, otherwise, yeah. you, you know, if you don't embrace the change, you're dead. Yeah. I think it was Churchill who said something like that, isn't it? Somebody, somebody like that said, I can't remember. I think uh, one of one of the quotes, I don't know if it's attributed to Churchill, is uh, nobody likes change except a wet baby. Oh, yeah, yeah but, could be. But yeah. it's but it's necessary, yeah. especially these days. Yeah. Uh, like you said, the rate is just ex- accelerating. So kudos to you and your company for embracing it as a culture. That's That's phenomenal. So that said... Do you have automation in your factories now? Are you using any robots? Yeah, or? we do. Yeah. Um, I mean, arguably, you could say almost everything we touch has got some level of robotics that's associated with it. If you look at um, something that's probably the most obviously impressive in terms of robotic technology that we use, it's in Italy. And it's the way we put product in and out of furnaces and load them onto lines. Oh, wow. Because historically, you've got a poor guy there in asbestos gloves which you can't have anymore but it would have been asbestos and leather gloves you know lots and lots and lots of years ago and now there are these robots that everybody sees you know in car manufacturing plants that are doing kind of spot welding and you know linear welding and all that kind of stuff and we use those same type of robots for loading furnaces you know to get them up to the right temperature before they can go into a onto a hammer and be pressed into into shape or hammered into shape um, that's really become a big prime mover for us in uh, over the last several years, actually. We were probably one of the earliest people to actually employ robotic technology within a forging plant. And the obvious, I guess, question when people talk about robots is what does that do to manpower? Right. <laughs> well, that certainly hasn't been the case for us, actually. It's almost been the reverse. What it's done, it's taken away some of the more, more laborious 
manpower that nobody really wants to do anyway. And it's changed it to more of a technology-fronted manpower. So this is the programming side of it, the machine tool maintenance of it, the, the, the way that it's fixtured. There's a whole host of supporting cast just for that machine. Yeah. It's like a theatrical production. You know, you've seen, I don't know whether you've seen these, these uh, robotically controlled machines that are doing dances, you know, to music. That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a bit like that in, when it comes to some of these robots. But there's a big supporting cast. That machine can't do it on its own. Right. And I prefer to be the person in the supporting cast than the guy that had got the asbestos gloves on with leather clad putting the thing in. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just a, it's a change in what people are used for yeah. rather than getting rid of jobs, basically. Right. right. So right. for us, it's not, it's not affected us in that way. I, I got to say that, you know, I don't know where this image comes from hear that in the press that robots are taking our jobs but every single factory i've talked to for this podcast has said exactly the opposite in fact some of them are hiring more people yeah for exactly that reason programming maintenance fixturing yeah Yeah. so that's that's one of the things we want to change with this podcast it's like hey look (laughs) so i mean i mean at one end of the spectrum you've got the crudest form of thing that you could do to a piece of metal which is heat it up Mm -hmm. before you bash it into shape (laughs) And we use robotics for that. In the finest form of robotic technology that we've got here, forgetting all the stuff that sits in the middle, it would be the CMM machines, the coordinate measuring machines, which are now operating. They, they, it's, it's a light source. It doesn't actually touch the metal. It's robotics that are controlling that. So we measure the intensity of the light as it shines off the machine. That's the finest sense of robotic technology that we use. And it, it covers the whole spectrum in between the manufacturing process basically so yes we do use robotics but they might not be so obvious in the shop here as they are when you see a big yellow machine that's right. dancing around the floor <laughs> you know? yeah. well this has been fabulous uh thank you so much and uh if you were to give advice to young people uh, or people transitioning out of one career into another and they wanted to get into manufacturing how how would you say people should approach that well, I think, firstly, there's one thing I'd just like to sort of qualify or clarify about what manufacturing is. And I think when we started this chat, I think you said, Mitch, that there's a general belief that manufacturing is making something in a factory. The reality is a factory is like a town or a city in its own right, because it needs all the key things that it takes to run a city. It needs financial control. So you have a finance department. It needs logistics to get the sewage water away or the water in. So it needs an infrastructure that can be controlled by logistics for the supply chain. It needs the ability to make things. It needs the the ability to create the models that will produce the product on machines. It needs the politics that sit outside for funding, Mm -hmm. interfacing with banks and governments and all those things. Manufacturing is not just about making something. You can think of, you can enter manufacturing in almost any field that you want. Probably, I was going to say not insurance, but actually big companies need insurance. So if you're a big company, they do have wings that specialize in how they're going to lay off insurance risk. So manufacturing has historically been a bit of a dirty word, actually. Certainly many years ago in England, if somebody said they were an engineer in manufacturing, it was like a second-class citizen oh. years and years ago. And oddly enough, 
the reverse has always been true in, true in Germany. Mm-hmm. Germans have always regarded engineers like doctors. So, and I think that the perception of manufacturing now in Europe has changed a lot. I like to think in North America it's also changed and changing. But I still think there are pockets that just don't understand it, probably because the, the families that are involved for the people who are trying to pursue a career in manufacturing or engineering just don't understand it because they've probably worked in a different environment. Right. And I think that's a whole education process, which is well underway. It's well underway with universities. It's well, in, well underway with economic development entities that sit within different states. I know that we've got a very good one here in Connecticut. And it's, I think it's also good to go to some of these job fairs. We always go to the job fair. There's a host of young people that go through there. It's like a plague of locusts going through. <laughs> and they're, they're young people in their final year at school trying to decide roughly what they want to do in terms of a career. And some of those people are so smart and they ask some fantastic questions. And you could almost pick them out and you could say, you're just the kind of person that we want because you're asking the right questions. So I would encourage anybody that's young, not sure what they want to do, to go to job fairs and ask the right questions about what their career could look like if it's in manufacturing. Hmm. I like that. What could my career look like if if I were in manufacturing? Yeah. I think the answer would be, Whatever you make it. Yeah, exactly. Really because the thing is, you don't know at that age. Right. You've got no idea what your future might look like. You have to have somebody that's old and grey saying, well, it could look like this if you did that. I also, this is just a personal hang-up of mine, which is probably a bad hang-up, but it is a hang-up. I think a lot of people today only want to hold a position for two years because they think, oh, two years, it's time for me to move on and do something else. Mm. I think one of the biggest problems is that a two-year horizon in a job, you haven't learned anything, mm. certainly not in manufacturing, because it can take two years for whatever your mistake was on day one to come back and bite you. And then somebody <laughs> else has to pick up the damage and repair it. So I think it's a little bit longer than that. And people, young people these days, and quite rightly so, are career hungry and so they should be everybody wants to have a good job and earn good money and do good things it's just completely natural my advice to anybody would be don't start trying to leap into another job until you've really mastered the one that you're doing and then you'll become a valuable asset to a company and then people will seek you out rather than you having to seek them well said thank you thank you so much for being on our podcast And thank you all for listening. Uh, This was uh, Clive Cunliffe, uh, president of North America Pietro Rosa Group. And we've been talking about uh, all different kinds of interesting things. Thank you, Clive. Thanks, Mitch. Tune in again next week for another episode. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Right now, we are offering free membership. Go to factoryofthefuture.org forward slash participate. We are looking for manufacturing writers, photos, and videos. And please contact us if you would like sustainability consulting services.